we live in a land of plenty. That is no surprise to us, is it? Um, and because we live in a land of plenty, we also live in a land of waste. We have so much waste. I mean, I missed trash day this week, and so I was scrambling. Eric came over. Eric showed up at my house, and I said, all right, good to see you. I'm leaving. I was trying to get to the dump before it closed because if I miss trash one week, I do not have a can large enough to hold all of our garbage. So much waste. I did not make it. So it's just sitting on my driveway getting eaten by cats, I'm sure. Um, but we waste, we waste food because we just have so much of it. Exhibit A, our dumpster after this picnic today. <laughs> we will have so much leftover. That is not a cue to go stick all your leftovers in my vehicle. I don't want them, but... Um, we waste water because all we have to do is we turn on the tap and it's there and we can count on it and it just doesn't stop flowing. Uh, um, there's, if, if there's an emergency and the water main break, what do we do? We go to grocery store, we buy cases of bottled water, jugs of it, and there's, there's plenty. Um, we waste time because we have, we have more than we admit. I know we, we always say we're so busy and we don't have any time, but, but we have so many conveniences to save time. We have vehicles and technology and microwaves and all of this stuff. It's not, we have all of these gadgets to help us do things faster than, than most people in the world. It's not want of time, it's waste of time that's the problem for us. Um, and so we, we use our gadgets that are time savers and we waste all this time and uh, all kinds of ways we come up to to waste time we waste money because we're among the wealthiest people in the world even the poorest of those in here Um, we buy five dollar coffee drinks and we just get sucked in at the checkout aisle and buy the magazine with the slick cover that we just have to have and we have Amazon with one-click shopping. I could buy stuff while I'm talking to you. And uh, it's tempting as a book guy. And iTunes, music, just one-click, 99 cents, 99 cents, 99 cents. It adds up. We waste money. We waste freedom because we have so much of it, and we take it for granted. Um, so it shows up we don't vote. We just, we just take it for granted what a privilege it is to enjoy the freedom that we have. We waste knowledge, education, because we have unparalleled opportunities to learn, and we don't realize how blessed we are. So, so some of you may waste less than the rest of us, but all of us waste a lot. And we waste so much, again, because we have so much, and we're so confident that there will always be more. That's why we waste it. I've been with the Flintoffs in Senegal. They don't waste water there. It is precious commodity. You brush your teeth, you get for a little, just get it wet, and then you brush them, and then you just rinse it off, and it's precious because you don't know if you're going to have it tomorrow. So there's something else, though, that we're, I'm not, this is not an environmental sermon or anything like that. <laughs> there's something else that we're also guilty of wasting, all of us. We're guilty of wasting grace. It's grace that we sing about, and, and, and we waste God's grace and His kindness by not letting it be, lead us to repentance. We waste God's gracious discipline by complaining 
about trials in our lives rather than changing. We waste God's gracious forgiveness by withholding forgiveness from others. We we waste God's gracious reconciling work work of reconciliation by, by not living at peace with one another. We waste God's grace gifts by not using them to serve one another. We waste, we waste most of all the, the, the serpent-crushing, sin-defeating death of Jesus Christ by, by conspiring with Satan himself and plotting to sin in secret, in the dark. And one of the reasons we waste so much grace is because we know there will always be more. God is so predictably extravagant and just pouring out more and more and more mercy and grace and kindness upon us. So we presume upon that grace and we waste it. Well, this section of Kings is about wasted grace. God showed His people incredible grace by giving them over and over opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to repent, to return to Him. But time and time again, they squander those opportunities. And so every coronation, every coronation of a king in the book of Kings is another invitation. It's God wooing His people back to Himself by all kinds of means, by both victories in battle and defeats on the, on the field of battle, by, by protection and persecution, by sickness, by healing, by discipline, by mercy. But over and over again, God's gracious invitations come in the mail and they're torn up and they're thrown back in His face. They spurn Him. And this is the idea in this text. And the big idea, and we saw this two weeks ago, that there's a high price to pay for squandering grace-given or God-given opportunities. And we see it so clearly in this passage. Two weeks ago, we looked at the eight kings of Israel. That's the first front page of your outline. You can go ahead and turn to the back. That's where we'll be this morning. All of those kings wasted God's grace on them and upon their nation. And when we left the northern... uh, tribes of Israel, that they're just ten years and one king away from being totally overrun by the Assyrians. Their, their, their days are numbered. We'll look at that next week. It's a great Mother's Day text, right? Just the over... Yeah, okay. Um, today we turn to the southern kingdom of Judah. And things are only a little bit better there. Uh, that we, we pushed the pause button on the story of Judah three weeks ago, I think, with, the, with Joash. Remember the boy king? Athaliah, the wicked, wicked queen that, um, that tried to kill off all of the descendants of David. But God used Jehoiada and Jehoshaphat to preserve this little infant, one-year-old infant, Joash. And they kept him in the temple. And when he turned seven, they, they secretly coronated him, crowned him king by this little coup. And they overthrew, they overthrew this Athaliah and Joash began to reign at age seven. And he was a good king. He at least started out that way. He, he loved God. He, he was raised by a priest to love God. He repaired the temple. He followed God's law. But he had a problem. And it's a problem we've seen throughout the kings of Judah. He, he didn't do anything with the high places. He didn't destroy them. And that led to all kinds of problems down the road for him. And his life ended very tragically, if you remember. He, he plundered the temple that he worked so hard to restore. 
to pay off the Syrians. And then, and then the people are just furious. So there's a, there's a group that some of his own servants assassinate him. Cold blood. And so after Joash dies, and this is where we pick up this morning, his son Amaziah becomes king. And this is what Eric read a moment ago. I've given little nicknames to these guys just because I've had two weeks to think about it. But Amaziah, I call him the arrogant thistle, and you'll, you've already seen why. Um, but Amaziah, he's a decent king. But, this is how it is and all, over and over again, right? Verse 3, we see the summary of his reign again. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, yet not like David his father. David's the gold standard of what a king in, of, of Judah is supposed to be like. He doesn't do like David. No, he did in all things as Joash, his father, had done. He's like the aluminum foil standard or something. I mean, he's better than nothing, but not great. Uh, but he does right in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 4, but... There it is. But the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. Those stinking high places. They they just won't go away. And that's the thing about high places. They never just go away. They, they, They have to be actively and aggressively put away. Destroyed. I mean, there's a lesson for us, and we'll make much of this in a moment, but our pet sins, our high places, they, they just don't go away with time. We, we think like that, but time won't heal those dark recesses of our hearts. Jesus said we have to take radical measures to deal with this kind of sin in our life. You, if your right eye causes you to stumble, you gouge it out. If your right hand causes you to stumble, you, you chop it off. You've you got to get radical. The kings of Judah, they seem to think that they could, they could keep the high places kind of on a long leash. Manage them instead of mortify them. And uh, legislate them rather than just level them. This is how they thought. We think like that too. We, we want to try and tame certain sins. You know, there's certain sins. Yeah, okay, we need to. That's always wrong. We lose sleep over those sins. But these are the sins that we try to tame. We want to control them. We want to kind of keep them in their place. As long as they kind of stay put and don't get out of hand. We're okay with those sins in our lives. We domesticate them when we're supposed to destroy them. We all have those areas, brothers and sisters. So these high places, in, in, in the context, these high places, those are those little independent altars that just dotted the landscape of the nation of Judah. They were all over the land. This is something they adopted from the pagan nations, that, that instead of traveling to all the way to Jerusalem, that's such a hassle, and you've got a, the temple and it's crowded. So no, 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 you can, you can instead worship Wherever, whenever, however you want. And so they put these little, these high places, these altars up, just little raised mounds of dirt in some places. Sometimes they'd be on hills, and it sounds great, right? As long as you're saying you're worshiping the Lord, Yahweh, uh, why can't you do it in your own backyard? Well, there's a problem, and it's that God expressly outlawed the high places because he knew that it would lead to idolatry, and that's exactly what happened. And so... Amaziah, just like his father, he lets them remain. 
And that's the summary of his reign. But how does it take shape? And we read this just a moment ago. He starts very well, but he finishes very poorly. And this is the same song, second verse, in in the story of Kings, isn't it? And we see this over and over again. Judah is a tinderbox when Amaziah comes to the throne. I mean, you think about the situation he's walking into. His dad was assassinated by his own servants. And here he comes in as... So in Israel, you know, the assassins, they just take the throne. But here, he's the son of this assassinated king is now on the throne. This is volatile. And, and so, but God uses him. Incredibly, he steps in and he, he leads wisely and with tremendous skill. He punishes his father's assassins, but he doesn't do what we would expect of kings in that day and age. He doesn't wipe out their whole families. No, he he shows restraint and self-control and submission to the law of God. The text expressly says that in in, in verse 6-7. He doesn't put to death the children of the murderers because that's what God's word says. And so he actually follows the law of God. That's so refreshing in the study of kings, isn't it? It is so rare. And God blesses Amaziah and Judah on account of this. And so he gives them this great victory over Edom in verse 7. And he struck down 10,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt and took Selah by storm. Now, military victories in Judah at this time were very rare. This was, they, they, they were so weak. Their MO has been to basically just pay off foreign armies, anybody who was trying to invade them, just to leave them alone. That's how they've been functioning. And so even though Edom is hardly some big world superpower, but 10,000, this army of 10,000 soldiers is defeated. That's nothing to laugh at. And more than that, they capture Selah, which is, is probably what's known as Petra, what we know as Petra. This was this impenetrable fortress. And they take it. That's, that's big. That's something to be proud of. And so... Judah's now the strongest they've been since the kingdom was divided after Solomon. They're, look, they're going, things are going great. They're looking up. And then he gets cocky. He gets cocky. He returns to Jerusalem. He struts into town from the battlefield, just proud as a peacock, just pounding his chest and feeling so confident in himself and this victory over Edom. And then he starts talking trash to the king of Israel, Joash. Verse 8 again, come, let us look one another in the face. Now, he's not inviting him to a staring contest. First one to blink loses. Now, he's picking a fight with, with Joash. And Joash responds with some smack talk of his own. If you want to know what trash talk sounds like, just wander over to the basket, basketball court today. We're, we're that pathetic. It, it is embarrassing. Um, but Joash says he's like this wild beast that's going to come and he's going to stomp that little thistle in Judah. Verse 10, you have indeed struck down Edom and your heart has lifted you up. Be content with your own glory. Stay at home for why should you provoke trouble so that you fall, you and Judah, with you? He's basically saying, enjoy your little league trophy there, little participation ribbon. That's cute. But, but don't, don't even try to come and play in the big leagues, little boy. That's just, he's condescending, but just, justifiably so. 
So verse 11, though, but Amaziah would not listen. So they fought, and Amaziah fared about as well as Robin Ventura did when he charged the mound with Nolan Ryan on it. That's for the two baseball fans. Um, the arrogant thistle is stomped, and he's taken into captivity. And then Joash comes all the way from Israel, the northern tribes, comes down into the capital of Judah, right into the heart of Judah to Jerusalem, just to assert his dominance. And he breaks down a portion of the wall, steals from the temple, showing the vulnerability of Judah when they thought they were so secure. Well, this is the fifth way. We're talking about squandering grace-given opportunities. fifth way it happens to us is we squander grace-given opportunities when we believe that small successes mean we're unbeatable. What does this look like for us? i just give you a few possibilities, and you can write your own script here, but maybe God gives, has given you a little success in parenting. Maybe your kids graduate from high school and they don't hate you. <laughs> they don't hate God. And so you are, this, this one's so bad. I mean, you're waiting for the next book deal to write how-to book, how to Christian parent. I mean, you've got to figure it out. And so you've got your small success and you're, you're assured. And, and yet, as the nest empties, you just, you just butcher your marriage. And it's, and it's this, this wake of debris from, from your own sin. Maybe, and this is a sad, a sad but common story, maybe God gives you someone success in ministry, enjoys fruitfulness, and God just seems to be blessing and blessing, and, and yet you fail morally. Dishonor the name of God. Discredit yourself. Maybe you have success morally, but you're a jerk. Nobody wants to be around you. Maybe you have tremendous gifting from the Spirit, and that's the grace of God in your life. But you don't manifest the graces of the Spirit. Love and joy, kindness, all of those graces. I mean, we thank God for His grace. It gives us victories from time to time. But don't get cocky don't think that you're invincible now we don't let success go to your heads if if you do you're going to stop seeking god desperately you think you'll have self-sufficiency you've arrived if you do you'll start acting impulsively and just responding instead of seeking god If, if you do you'll no longer listen to others you won't seek counsel from people you have everything you need in yourself So don't squander God's grace in your life by by thinking that a victory in your life, a success, as it were, means that you don't need God anymore. 1 Corinthians 10, 12, just summarize that. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. That's in the context. Paul's calling them to think back on the Old Testament and how particularly related to idolatry. Learn from those who've gone before us. Learn from, from Amaziah. Next up to bat, we have Azariah or Uzziah. This is, I call him the long-reigning leper. 
the long reigning leper. He's called by two names. I know that gets a little confusing, but this is like uh, Charles, Charlie, Chuck, Jimmy, James, you know, two names, same person. And so you'll see him in Chronicles referred to as Uzziah in Isaiah chapter 6, the year that King Uzziah died. This is him. This is Azariah. He's only 16 years old. Teenagers, listen to that. 16 years old when he takes the throne and he reigns for 52 years. That's scary for some of you 16-year-olds. No offense, please. Um, but like his dad and his granddad, he starts very well. Second Chronicles 26.5. Uh, again, I'm just going to reference a few passages over there because it's a background that the writer of Kings will say. We'll show this in the morning. He leaves all this out, but he assumes you have knowledge of this. So we just give you a few snippets. Second Chronicles 26, verse 5. He set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah. Zechariah was a prophet who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. And so... The prophet Zechariah's influence upon Azariah is much like uh, Jehoiada's influence was upon Joash, if you remember, the priest. And so all of the great achievements, and there were many great achievements during the early years of his reign, military victories and construction projects and, and food production and technological advances, all kinds of incredible things happened during the, those early years of, of, of Azariah's reign, and they're chronicled for us in Chronicles. But all of them can be attributed, in a sense, to Zechariah, who was constantly encouraging the king to seek God. And so, so this is what the chronicler is saying. This influence was tremendous in, in Azariah's life. And, 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 and so Azariah became very strong, Second Chronicles 26 say, and his fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped, verse 15. But none of that is even mentioned by the writer of Kings. <laughs> Again, he assumes our knowledge of it, but he's really only concerned with one detail, really. It's how he died. And he died as a leper. Verse 3, and he did what was right in the, this is Second Kings chapter 15. I know we're kind of skipping around picking up the kings of Judah here. 15, chapter, uh, chapter 15 of 2 Kings, verse 3. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. Again, not according to the gold standard, David. Nevertheless, there it is. The high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. Verse 5. And the Lord touched the king. This is God's doing. So that he was a leper to the day of his death and lived in a separate house. And Jotham, the king's son, was over the household, governing the people of the land. Now, why did the Lord touch him and make him a leper? Again, we have to go to Chronicles to find out, but it's in Second Chronicles twenty-six, sixteen. Again, everything's going well. Everything's, he's, just, he's just growing and he's mighty. Verse 16, when he became strong, he grew proud to his destruction, the text says. He became too big for his britches, as we say in the South. He didn't want to just be a mere king. He also wanted to be a priest. He wanted to, he wanted to offer uh, offerings on the altar of incense. He wanted to burn incense. And God had expressly said in his law that priests weren't to be kings. Kings weren't to be priests. He knew that distinction between priest and king, but he didn't care. He became so proud, 
so full of himself that he defied the law of God. He said, I'll do what I want. And he goes and he burns incense. And there's only, there's only one person who's ever been qualified to be both priest and king. It's Jesus Christ. And in a sense, Jesus' position, it's Jesus' position as priest-king that Azariah is really trying to usurp. And so the high priest, along with 80 other priests, they confront Azariah, they rebuke him in the name of the Lord, and rather than responding with brokenness and repentance, he just gets furious. He is ticked that they would confront him, the king. And at the moment he gets angry, leprosy breaks on his forehead. He, he freaks out and just tears off out of the temple. And the priest, the scripture is very, very descriptive of this scene, that they, they chase him. He, he runs on his own, but they follow him, chasing him, pushing him out of the temple. I just love the, just like to think of what that sight would have been like. 81 priests just chasing this guy who's just running for his life. And for the last decade of his life, he lived in a separate place, the text says. And we know from Leviticus 13, 45 and 46, that what was the, his, his basic responsibility in life from that point forward was that anytime someone went by, he was supposed to yell, unclean, unclean, to warn people. What? It's hard to imagine a more tragic and sad end to a reign that started so gloriously. And this brings us to the sixth way we squander grace-given opportunities. We squander them when we become, again, too big for our britches. Pride is a killer, church. And we all have it. It is so stealth, isn't it? It's, It's like, I've said this before, but it's like bad breath. We don't know we have it. But those that are close to us, they know we have it. And they may be too afraid or unsure how to how to tell us show us that it's there now, how does it show up in our lives what does it look like and i know we've I've, we've used this before but it's so helpful stuart scott's little book pride and humility um has some just some questions and thoughts in terms of how pride might manifest itself in our lives i mean just i'm just going to read several of these not all of them but just just some to get you thinking how pride might be residing in your own heart and life. It could be having an inflated view of your importance, gifts, or abilities. Seeing yourself as better than others. I, 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 that made me think of uh, Jerry Bridges' book, Respectable Sins, many of you are familiar with. He has a section, one of the respectable sins, and he's using that tongue-in-cheek, is the sin of pride, Some, one of those sins we kind of, we just don't make much of. It's, it's a high place for us. But he talks about pride of correct doctrine. I thought that is one church like ours may be inclined to. Um, and he, he, Bridges describes it assuming that whatever we believe is true just because we believe it. And anyone who holds another belief is theologically inferior. It's that attitude. He said, Paul writes to the Corinthians, knowledge puffs up. Puffs up. Now, Paul agreed with the knowledge of the Corinthians. He agreed with their way of thinking about food offered to idols, but he, he warns them and he exhorts them, be careful. It will make you conceited. And he accuses them of doctrinal pride. 
just some ways this shows up in our lives. Do you have a difficult time forming and maintaining close friendships with people who really disagree with you? Is that hard for you? Do you just, do you just tend to hang around people who kind of walk in step with you? Convictions are good, but we need to hold them with humility and charity. Are there areas that you tend to be doctrinally proud? I just thought I'd screw it down a little tighter on that one. But just some other ways that Scott talks about, or Scott talks about perfectionism. You ever think of that as pride? Talking too much, more specifically talking too much about yourself. Being, now nobody's going to talk today at the picnic. <laughs> I mean, nervous. Um, being a rugged individualist, you just you don't think you really need other people kind of have what it takes so you live kind of isolated from others you think you can help other people but you don't think you need other people to help you do anything being consumed with what other people think of you related to that being devastated or angered by criticism of you being unteachable being sarcastic hurtful or degrading of others not willing not being willing to admit when you're wrong Voicing preferences or opinions when you're not asked. Minimizing your own sin and shortcomings and making much of others' sins and shortcomings. Resisting authority. God's authority or other people. Impatience and irritability with others. And we could go on and on. It's sneaky, folks. Stealth. Letting pride grow in your heart. Giving it room in the garden of your life to grow and to thrive. Is, is, is one of the greatest ways that we squander the grace, waste the grace that God pours upon us. Well, according to chapter 15 and verse 5, Azariah's lane, reign overlaps with his son's reign. Because he was a leper, he was cut off from the people, so his son begins governing the land during the last decade, really, of Azariah's, quote, reign from the separate house. While he's still living, though. And we come to Jotham. Jotham, I call him a glimmer of light. He's just a glimmer, but he's a glimmer of light. We find his count in verse 32, 2 Kings 15. And the writer of of Kings doesn't really say much about Jotham. From Kings and Chronicles together, we learn he was a good king. He loved God. Chronicles says he ordered his ways before the Lord is God. That's, That's a good thing. Because of that, God blessed him. He, he became mighty. He built cities. He built forts. He built walls. He built gates. He built towers. So he really strengthened the infrastructure of Judah um, during his reign. He's a good guy. The text says what? Here it is again. But he didn't, he didn't put away the high places. He's a good guy. Chronicle says, though, the writer of Chronicle says, but he, he didn't worship the Lord in the temple. In the South, we love to talk about good guys, don't we? We're a good guy culture. He's a good guy. Now, by that, what do we? I don't know what we mean. Sometimes I don't know what we mean. Maybe we, he's a guy that he would be enjoyable to sit down and watch a game with, eat pizza with, or something. And yeah, he's he's a good guy. Um, but being a good guy isn't enough. This is this brings us to the seventh way we squander grace-given opportunities. When we do it, when we begin to think that better. Or good or okay is good enough. 
Jotham was just all right. He didn't totally screw things up like those that had gone before him. He, he didn't, though, really take a stand for righteousness. He would be a good southern boy, God and country, just a good guy. Don't rock the boat. Don't make a mess of your life. Just kind of go with the flow of the culture. That's Jotham. And that's instructive to us because we waste opportunities that God gives us in his grace when we just content ourselves to mirror the morality of the culture around us. We just want to blend in. We, we, we expect very little from God. We, we desire little of God and we risk little for God. <coughs> just kind of go. We don't burn with zeal. For God in His glory. But we go to church. We go to church every week. Twice, maybe. Good guy. We don't, we don't want our marriages to be this beautiful reflection of the relationship that Christ has with His church. No, we just, we just, we just don't want to get divorced. We just want to stay married. That's all the goal we have. Because we know that's wrong. We, we don't just weep in brokenness for the lost around us and around the world and move toward them in love with Christ. No, we just, we just kind of want to retreat to our little Christian compounds and make sure our family's taken care of. This is, this is the lukewarmness that the Laodiceans are rebuked for by Jesus. It's good, good guys. We don't want to just be a good church. We want to be a church that burns for the Lord. That's, I hope that's how you're praying. I don't just want to be a good guy. I want to be, I want to be used up for the Lord. I want to be burnt to the last scrap of wick that God has given me. For him. Well, Jotham's son comes to power and he reigns for 16 years and he is a bad, bad guy. He ranks as one of the most wicked rulers in the history of Judah. He's Ahaz the awful. Chapter 16 is where we find this account. Verse 2 Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. He's not a man after God's own heart like David. But instead, he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. That's not good. We know about the kings of Israel. None were good. All did evil in the sight of the Lord, the scriptures say. But how bad was he really? Well, let's look. Verse 3. He even burned his son as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. He doesn't worship the Lord. At least he doesn't worship him alone. He worships this God, Molech. You know how you get on the good side of Molech? You burn your own infant son alive to appease him. And here's a descendant of David. Probably doing this just outside the temple of the Lord. Burning his own son as an offering to Moloch. It's demonic. 
Verse 4, and he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. That, those seeds of rebellion that were planted way back when all of the descendants of... They, they wouldn't do anything with the high places. He just let them stand. That, that has come to fruition now. And he doesn't just permit them. He constantly, he constantly is involved in the worship of the high places. Those harmless little independent altars... God won't let this idolatry go unpunished. So he sends this massive invasion from, from the Syrian-Israeli alliance that formed. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago back in chapter in 15. And according to Chronicles, we know that Judah lost hundreds of thousands of people due to either death or capture during this invasion. They weren't able to take the capital, Jerusalem. So 16.5 says they besieged Ahaz but could not conquer him. But it had a a humiliating, powerful effect on Ahaz and the whole nation. Isaiah 7, which is Isaiah 7. Remember, this is the, the refused sign of the virgin. This is what it's talking about. And he's describing life there at this time. And he says, The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. They were shaken to the core. And so facing this enemy, he can't resist. What is he going to do? He has a few options. One, he could surrender. Not going to do that. He could seek the Lord, which is exactly what Isaiah was urging him to do. He's definitely not going to do that. But what he can do is he can play the diplomatic card. He can appeal to this, 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 the king as, as his Lord and protector. A king of Assyria. And so that's the option he chooses. So he sent messengers to, to grovel before the pagan king of Assyria. And he says to him, I am your servant and your son. He refuses to submit to, to, to Yahweh, but he gladly submits to this snake of Assyria. And if you, I, I, I wish I could have a map to show it. So you have Judah to the south, Israel to the north, Syria just kind of to the north and east of them. And Israel and Syria have kind of joined forces because... To the north and east of Syria, you have Assyria. And they're the big power. And they're, they're wanting to crush everybody. And so they see what the writing on the wall, so they join together. But you have Assyria. And so Judah says, or the, Ahaz says, I'm, I'm linking with him. I'm the biggest guy in the room. And so he appeals to this king of Assyria. And he strips the temple and the palace of everything of value. And he presents this to the king of Syria. It's, the word is really translated should be translated a bribe. Bribes off the king of Assyria. He doesn't trust God. He trusts man. So in 733 B.C., just listen to this history. Don't lose me here because this is important understanding what's going on. Just track with me here for a few more minutes. 733 B.C., the Assyrians, they march against Damascus. Remember, that's the first nation in their, in their path here. They march against Damascus. That's the capital of Syria. So Assyria against Syria. They laid siege for 18 months. They captured the city, 732 B.C. And, and Syria basically, as it existed up to that point, it ceases to exist. They're done. And so it's only a matter of time before Israel to the north of Judah now suffers the same fate. We see it in 2 Corinthians 15.29. Uh, 2 Kings 15.29. Assyria seizes a good chunk of Israel's territory and takes many captive and Hosea is the last Israelite king he becomes kind of a vassal king of 
of, of Assyria in chapter 17, verse 3. We'll see this fall next week again. So Ahaz, Ahaz had escaped Syria and Israel by bribing the king of Assyria. But he's, he's now forced. He can't, he can't not continue to feed the snake of Assyria. He's got to keep feeding this guy. And so the Assyrians, they set up this kind of regional headquarters in Damascus. That they, the city they laid siege to and, and overcame. And Ahaz makes a pilgrimage up there. He goes and he wants to swear allegiance to the king of Assyria. And while he's there, just bowing and groveling before this pagan king, he sees an altar that the Assyrians have constructed in the city of Damascus. And he is impressed with it. That is, that's big time. And so he, he has a draft, a blueprint made of this altar. And he sends it back to his high priest back in Jerusalem. And he says, you build one just like it. He's not going to let the newest thing in worship pass him by here. So, so, so he does this. And Ahaz returns to Jerusalem from his little groveling pilgrimage. And he goes and he presents offerings on this pagan altar that's been built. He defiants against the Lord. And he has, though it's now this antiquated, redundant, though, of the Lord bronze altar pushed to the side pushed behind the new fancy pagan altar and he he paganizes i'm making that word up but it's all i can think of he paganizes god's place of holy worship and and we're told he did this not at the direction of the assyrians this is assyrians this is his own thing they didn't make him do this Now, when they do come, they do make some further suggestions to him. You know, you might want to think about making a few changes to the temple furnishings. And he is glad to defer to the Assyrians on all things related to the worship of Yahweh. And and so does whatever they wanted. The the, the glory of the temple is gone. I mean, it's a far distant fading memory, that glory of the Solomonic temple at this point. His legacy is one of appeasement and compromise. He led, he's leading the nation toward just complete assimilation with their pagan neighbors. The identity of Judah as God's chosen people is just slipping away. And he's just going down the same slippery path that Israel is already well on their way down. And so this brings us to the last. last way we squander grace-given opportunities is, this, is when compromise becomes the controlling principle of our lives. Compromise becomes a controlling principle of our lives. So just one quick warning, even before we unpack that. How did Ahab become so awful? Well, we don't, sin in his heart. I mean, we, the devil, I mean, we have all kinds of, there's multiple answers to that. But let me just show you one thing as it's shown for us in Scripture. What did his dad do? His dad yawned at the grace of God. He, he, he didn't make God's worship a priority. He was a good guy. He thought okay was good enough. He let the socially acceptable forms of idol worship just kind of go on. He was a good guy. He yawned at the Lord. So what does Ahaz do? He despises the Lord. He never saw his dad take seriously the law of God. And he ended up defying it. I'm not trying to I'm not trying to overplay that card, but I would just say dads and moms. Be careful what you model for your sons and daughters. 
Your apathy is not as benign as you think it is. Your apathy may breed apostasy in them. Just being a lukewarm, good guy, nice lady, southern gentleman, may make it easy for your children to lose confidence in the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they walk away from it all. I'm not saying that, that there's a foolproof way to make sure that doesn't happen and you can have fire for God and children can still rebel and wander away. But I'm just saying there is, there, I think there's a connection that can be made. D.A. Carson has said this before, but he talks about this. One generation deeply believes the gospel. The next generation assumes the gospel. And then the third gen- generation denies the gospel. We want to deeply believe the gospel and teach our children to deeply believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, but compromise. This is the way we squander grace-given opportunities. Is compromise the controlling principle of your life? Spiritual compromise is subtle. It's gradual. It's, 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 it's not this one-time decision. It's this, we slowly lose our appetite for God's word and for prayer. We... We slowly but increasingly become disinterested in the church and being around the people of God. We, we slowly but increasingly have more and more tolerance for worldly appetites and pleasures and, and methods and philosophies and ways of thinking. It's gradual. It's subtle. So note that. Second, spiritual compromise is easily excused or or justified, or rationalized. We're, we come up with all kinds of clever ways to, to call it something else, to make it palatable, and to defend ourselves. Third, spiritual compromise doesn't usually affect us negatively immediately. It, 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 doesn't, it doesn't do that. It's, it's slower. It's longer. And finally, spiritual compromise leads to serious spiritual consequences. The end is certain. You will reap what you sow. But let me just say to you, I mean, maybe this is a path you've, you've been wandering down for some time. Maybe a young teenager. Maybe, maybe older. And this is, this is the temptation. You see this slippage in your life. You're here because there's good food today. <laughs> Came back. It's like Easter Sunday for the church. Um, but God's grace is sufficient to restore you if that's the path you've gone down. He, it is one small step to turn back to God, cry out to Him, and it begins with this, Father, forgive me, forgive me, help. That's what God wants. He just wants your heart to turn back to Him, and you can do that this morning. And I beg you to, I, want, I pray for those who've, who've already slipped into the subtle grip of compromise. Maybe your kids, maybe you've seen a brother or sister that used to be sitting next to you in this assembly, and they're out there on the fringe of life. Pray for them. Well, Justin did right in the sight of the Lord, but he didn't, he didn't put away the high places. Barack Bible Church, they ride in the side of the Lord. Nevertheless, they didn't deal with the high places. That's, that's not what we want to be said of us as a church. 
That's not what I want to be said of me. High places, there aren't those big, obvious sins that, again, that cause us to lose sleep and keep us up at night. The high places in our life are those sins that we cuddle up with at night and we sleep very well. And we were okay with them. We've learned to be content and, 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 and we've domesticated them. They're blind spots. We don't often see them. I, I tell you, just real quick, one, uh, and then we'll, we'll pray and we'll sing. The Vision 2020 surveys, thank you. I know uh, many of you have filled those out. I know it's taken longer than we expected. And, and thank you for joyfully doing that and maybe doing that. And, and uh, I mean, the feedback is really valuable uh, already, what we've received. Uh, if you, we're, because it's taking longer than we expected, we're going to give you another five days. So if you could do it maybe by Friday of this next week, some of you are like, man, I stayed up all night doing that thing. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Uh, talk to uh, talk to J.K. He'll he'll answer that. He's leaving after, as soon as church is over. So, um, but you know, one of the things that's helpful, I think it will. It's going to be a process that helps us see maybe what some of those blind spots are for us as a church. Some maybe high places um, that we might have, and may God give us grace to not justify them, not defend them, not play them down, but repent and turn from them. And, well, church, this is the wonderful news. I know it's kind of, uh, oh, man, just a bunch of wasted grace. But this is the good news. We know there's more. I mean, we don't, we're not embarrassed by that. There's more grace. Through Jesus, we have received grace upon grace upon grace and kindness upon kindness. It's not going to end. It's not going to end. Don't squander it, brothers and sisters. Don't squander it. Let's pray. Oh, Father, help us. Help us. We Help us not to content ourselves with um, just existing, just hanging on. Oh, God, correct that, that false kind of contentment in our hearts that is so prevalent in our culture even in our Christian subculture. Lord, we want to burn for you. And uh, I pray that you would help us, not just as a bunch of individuals, but collectively, God, you would use one, you would use us to help one another so that together we burn brightly for Christ and we're used to, to, great, to great ends for the glory of your name. We ask these things. Amen.